0: So obviously, that was not Albert reading Scripture. That was Leah. Thank you very much, Leah, for leading us in Scripture reading this morning. Um, The disciples have been with Jesus for three years now. Okay? They have seen him in action. They have seen him teach. Uh, They have seen him do miracles. They have seen him... Uh, raise people from the dead here. They have seen him do all kinds of incredible healings. They've seen him uh, share that this kingdom of God that he keeps talking about is imminent. It is going to be here anytime soon. It is it is just moments away from being realized in uh, in their experience. And we read uh, a passage that actually comes after Palm Sunday. I don't know if you know this, but next Sunday is Palm Sunday. Um But this passage comes after Palm Sunday in the story of Scripture. So for the disciples who are now in the upper room and having this meal with Jesus, for them, Palm Sunday has already happened. And they saw on Palm Sunday something absolutely incredible. They saw that Jesus uh, had come into town in glory, into the city of Jerusalem. Now he's riding on a donkey That's not exactly their first choice. They think maybe a big war horse would have been better, but whatever, you can't get everything you want. So they're satisfied with the donkey. What's more important is that they see that the people are waving palm branches as Jesus comes in. They're taking their cloaks and they're throwing them on the the ground and they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, blessed is the son of David. They see they're accepting Jesus as their king. And so the disciples are like, the kingdom is like, really, really close. It is at hand. It's going to happen any minute now. All those years of hard work are finally paying off. And so what do they do? They start plans. They start thinking about the new administration. And they wonder, how am I going to fit in the new administration? I wonder what kind of post I'm going to get in the new administration. And Luke, account of the Last Supper, he actually says that the disciples get into a big fight over it. They start arguing about Who's going to get the top job? Who's going to be finance minister? You know, that's a plum post. And who's going to be stuck with, like, I don't know, minister of tourism in COVID? That's got to be the worst job ever, right? And so they're having this argument, and Jesus overhears this, and he's very, very upset with them. Because, you know, they are just saturated with the world's concept of power and authority. Still, after three years of him teaching them, listen, my kingdom is not like other kingdoms i'm not that kind of king the son of man did not come to be served but he came to serve and give his life as a ransom of many I want to be part of my admitted way that you have to behave as well and they don't seem to get it and on top of that this is right before they're about to see the greatest denunciation of the world's kind of understanding of power and authority ever perpetuated in the history of the world because Jesus is about to go to the cross and he's about to demonstrate that the way to win is through losing that the way to victory is through defeat that the way to reach the heights is to to plunge to the depths and here they are arguing about who's going to get the corner office And so now Jesus needs to teach them. Now remember, this is the the Last Supper, and it says in verse 1, it says, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So Jesus knows that his time on earth is short. That pretty soon he's going to go to the cross, and he's going to go to the grave, and then he's going to return to his Father. Now when you know that you have very little time left on this earth, it's very, very focusing to what matters to you. You don't have time for idle chit-chat about things. You want to get to the heart of the matter. You want to deal with the the things that are most important to you. As someone who has had the privilege of journeying with people who have known that they are dying. One of the things you discover is that it's an extremely focusing experience. You don't dilly-dally with the extraneous issues. You deal with what matters. And so Jesus is about to deal with what matters with his disciples. But what's different about how he's going to teach them about his kingdom this time is he's going to do it in a living parable. He's not just going to say it, he's going to act it out for them. And what we're going to look at here is we're going to see that there is a a surface message, there is a a pretty obvious and simple message on the top, but then we're also going to see that there is a lesson uh, in a message that goes deeper, which actually transforms, informs, uh, expands the the surface message. So we're going to start here, we're going to go here, and we're going to come back up here. That's how we're going to do this. So let's have a look at this together. This is a parable of Christ's love. It's very simple to see that, obviously. It says in verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Other translations say he showed them the extent of his love. Jesus washing the disciples' feet was a way for Jesus to demonstrate how far he was willing to go for them. Now, why is that the way you would show it? Well, this is an ancient Near Eastern culture. It is a uh, climate unlike ours where it's, it's warm and it's dry and it's arid. And so people walked around wearing sandals all the time. And because they didn't have modern sanitation and stuff like that, when you went through the village, oftentimes the streets had all the refuse of uh, village life or city life running down the streets along with you and so as you walked the, the your feet would get hot and of course they would sweat and then they'd get dirty and stuff would get caked on them and the stuff that got caked on them was was not just the sweat it was you know maybe some poop maybe some urine maybe some Garbage, rotting food, all this kind of stuff. So by the end of the day, your feet were caked on with this really, really gross stuff. And so it was customary and normal that when you went in at the end of the day for your evening meal, you'd wash your feet first. I mean, many of us know what it's like, I think, you know, when you get grime in between your toes let's say it's summertime and you're at the campground or something and you you feel that grime in your toes and and maybe you're about to go to bed and you're like i don't want that stuff in my bed that's gross right like i gotta get this off so it was normal for them to want to do this but nobody wanted to do it for anybody else in fact It was considered such a disgusting job to wash a person's foot in that culture that it was something only a slave could be told to do. And if you were a Jewish slave, your Jewish master was not allowed to tell you to do it. They couldn't force you to do that. You know, slaves, masters, masters can do whatever they want with slaves, but that's one thing they couldn't do because it was considered such a degrading Task that only the absolute lowest class of people could be forced to do it. And we don't even have, I think, unless you can come up with one, I couldn't come up with a modern sort of parallel or equivalent to that. So the disciples, they come into this meal and nobody wants to wash anybody's feet, so they sit down and they start to eat. And you, I don't know if you know this, but, but back then you didn't sit at a table the way we do with your feet under the table. You reclined at a table so your feet were generally behind you. But we're looking at 13 pairs of smelly stinky barefoot feet in a room in a building we don't know how big the room was but you can only imagine how the smell starts to waft its way through and if you've ever tried to eat with a stench in the presence of your food it's not a nice experience so partway through partway partway through the meal Jesus gets up from the table He's at the head of the table, he gets up from the table, and his disciples see him start to take off his outer garments, his clothing. He takes off his t-shirt or whatever, and he takes his pants down, and now he's just basically in his underwear. And he grabs a towel, and he puts it around him. That's what the loincloth is. And he fills a basin with water, and now the disciples are starting to figure out what he's going to do. And he starts going to each and every one of them and, and washing their feet. And after he's done washing everybody's feet, he goes back to his seat, puts his coat back or his outer garment back on, you know, dries his hands off, returns to his spot in the seat, and he says this, verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. I am the one in authority. I am your Lord. I'm the one who teaches you, but I'm also the one who is your absolute authority. I am your God. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. You're sitting around here arguing about who gets the corner office and who you want all this prestige and you want all this acclaim, but if you want to follow me, you know what? This is how you've got to act. you got to do this kind of thing for each other. No task... Should be too menial for those of you who are united to me and who are part of my kingdom. It's a little bit like you're watching an LA Lakers game, and at halftime the team comes off the court, LeBron grabs a water bottle because he's been playing fiercely. He's already got 26 points and he's got nine rebounds and he's got eight assists, guaranteed triple-double coming, grabs a water bottle, goes like this, and nothing comes out, and he's like, What? grabs another one nothing grabs another one nothing there's no water in the water bottle so what does he do does he look at the you know the 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 towel boy and say get off your rear end and go get the water bottles no he just shakes his head grabs all the water bottles put them in the water carriage he leaves you see him go out of the tunnel and a couple minutes later he comes back and he distributes water bottles to the rest of the team I know pretty poor comparison to Jesus but hey it's Jesus nothing's gonna compare to Jesus but it's a little bit like that. The idea is is that, that nothing, nothing to a follower of Jesus Christ should be considered beneath them. Station doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. Because you see, when you are a member of the kingdom of God, when you by faith have come to know Jesus as your savior and your Lord, he's your teacher, he's your Lord, you confess him, you got to that place by grace. And grace is a beautiful thing because it is the ultimate equalizer. I am a follower of Jesus Christ not because I am smarter than other people. You are a follower of Jesus Christ not because you're, you're more moral and upright than other people. We are followers of Jesus Christ simply because of grace. It is undeserved favor for every single one of us. And therefore, there can be no hierarchy or pecking order, order in the kingdom of God. If anything, we should be fighting to get to the bottom. Who can serve better who can, who can serve more consistently? That's what we should be about. Yes, my job is to preach. Your job is to listen. <laughs> but neither of us is in a higher spot in the kingdom of God. What does the author of Hebrews say? He says, he says outdo one another in doing good. That's the lesson on the face of it. basically Jesus is saying is if you want to be a part of me you need to serve others the way i serve others but then there's something deeper going on here because this is a parable not just of his love but it's a parable of his unique mission it is actually a parable of his salvation you see it's not just about if you want to be like if you want to be part of me you have to be a servant too be be a servant king like i am a servant or be a servant leader like I am a servant leader. That is, of course, the lesson. We've just looked at that. But it's more than just you need to be willing to serve others just like I am willing to serve you. Because if that's all it is, what do you make of verses 6 through 8? Listen to verses 6 through 8. This is the exchange that Jesus has with Peter. And Peter's always great, right? Because Peter does sort of... Spontaneous things. He talks without thinking. He puts his foot in his mouth. He says what's in all our heads, but we're afraid to open up. He does it for us. And so here we have Simon Peter. When Jesus comes to him, Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter says, no, you shall never wash my feet. Now listen to what Jesus says. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. What's going on there? Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Part with me. You have no fellowship with me. You and I are not united. You and I are not bound together. That's what he's saying. Now, why why say that if this is just about serving other people? Like, if it's just, you know, is he saying that that you must be willing to be served in order to serve, that you must be willing to have people do good for you if you're going to do good for others. Is that what he means when he says, I must wash you? Unless I wash you, you have no part with me? I don't think so. See, Jesus says, you have to be washed by me. Unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. I must wash you. You need it. I alone can do it. You are dirty. You need to be made clean. The only one who can make you clean is me. And if you don't let me clean you, if you don't let me wash you, Peter, you can't have me. That's what he's saying. Here's why. All throughout Scripture, there's a theme about sin and the nature of sin. Sin defiles us the Bible says. Sin makes us dirty. It makes us filthy. It makes us unclean. This kind of language is woven throughout the entire Old Testament. And no matter how good you are, the Bible says, no matter how good you think you are, or no matter how good others think you are, we all share in this defilement, this being made unclean, this being made filthy. And because of that, every single one of us cannot have fellowship with God because God is pure, God is holy, God is utterly clean and therefore he cannot be brought into contact with that which is unclean because he will consume it and it will be destroyed. Now that may sound like kind of a weird concept, clean, unclean and all this kind of stuff but if you think about it, people actually do understand this concept we understand that there are people, at least in our culture, we would say we understand that there are people who are really bad. They're, they're really bad, they're evil, right? So we're talking uh, sex offenders. People would say they're really bad. Drug dealers that take advantage of people and exploit their vulnerabilities so that they are enslaved to a substance. Human traffickers, think about this, there are people who actually enslave other people and sell them for their own personal profit. Or serial killers, people who who actually have no psychological sense of guilt against killing another human being. And these people, they... Well, we know they're evil, we know that they, they de- but we know also that they, they are defiled and defiling. They give us the creeps. Like when you're in the, in the, when you're in contact with people like that, you can feel like you have been defiled and made dirty. Let me give you an example. Sometimes women will say about a man who, uh, who is a sexual predator, that when they're in the presence of that person, they feel dirty. So I've heard women say, you know, when that guy looks at me, it makes me feel dirty, it makes me want to go home and take a shower. Because their defilement somehow infects us. And it's not just people that can do that to us, it's actually places that can do that to us. So for example, if you have ever been to a maximum, maximum security detention center or prison, and I'm thinking, like in the states, in comparison to Canada, it's even another level. But even the Canadian ones are pretty—they're pretty tough. You go into these places, and you get this vibe, this sense of darkness. You get the sense of, of of evil and wickedness. That when you leave, just having been in the space, you feel a little bit like I've been infected by this. I've been—I've been—it's been communicated to me somehow. Now, according to the Bible, that doesn't just happen on the extreme end of things. The Bible says that is really what's going on with all of us. When we sin, we are defiled. Listen to Isaiah 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. That's a pretty serious indictment on human beings. eh? We always like to say around here at Grace Valley... Um, you're more wicked than you ever dared imagine. That is the Bible's statement. That's what the cross of Jesus Christ shows us about the human condition. And the holiness of God, his righteousness, his purity, his majesty, it actually exposes that sinfulness to us. The best illustration of that actually comes from uh, the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 3, The prophet Zechariah is given a vision where he is brought into the holy of holies or the most holy place of the temple. And for those of you who don't know how the temple works, let me just quickly explain it. The temple had three courts to it. It had the outer court, it had the inner court, and then it had the holiest place. So it had the the holy place and the holiest place and then the outer court. And the people of God were allowed in the outer court The priests were allowed in the inner court. The only one who's allowed in the holiest holies is God himself. That is where God dwelled with his people. The presence of God in Israel was to be found in that geographical location. Now, once a year on the Day of Atonement, which is a remembrance of the Exodus, the high priest was allowed to go into the holiest place briefly, mind you, to take the blood of a lamb or a goat, and or of a lamb, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant, which was in the holiest place. Okay. Why am I telling you all this? Zechariah is getting a vision of Joshua the high priest going in to the holiest place. But you need to understand some context from history, from extra biblical history, and and. Uh, In these various places, we learn that by the time of Zechariah, there was a process that the the high priest would go through to go in there. So first of all, he was married and he had kids, but the week before the Day of Atonement, when he was going to go into the holiest place, he would leave his family and he would go get an apartment. And the reason was, is he had to be cut off from anything that's unclean or impure because he had to purify himself for this great moment of going into the holiest place. And so he lived for a week in an apartment and he spent all that time meditating on scripture and purifying his soul and confessing his sin and, uh, and memorizing the Bible and all that kind of stuff. And on the night before he was supposed to go in, he would stay up all night and other priests would stay up all night with him and they would uh, recite scripture and they would pray together and he would be purifying his soul. The next morning, he would get up and he would dress in pure white linen robes. And he would go into the court and behind a screen so that all the people could see this happening, he would disrobe and he would bathe. Then he would put on his linen cloth and he would go into the holy place, the second part, part of, the, of the, the temple. He would go in there and he would sacrifice for his sins. Then he would come out He would go back behind the screen. He would disrobe and he would bathe. Then he would put on a fresh white linen robe. He would come out. He would go into the holy place and he would sacrifice for the other priests. Then he would come out. Guess what he would do? He would disrobe. He would bathe. He would put on fresh linen. He would go out and then he would sacrifice for the people. Then he would come out. And he would go behind the screen and he would disrobe and he would bathe and he would wash again so that the people could be absolutely certain that he was completely, totally spotless to go into the holiest place and make sacrifice on behalf of the people. And when he came out, he would take two animals, he would take a goat, and he would put the sins on the people and he would send it away into the wilderness as a symbol of the the sins of God's people being taken away and then he would kill another goat or a lamb and he would pour the blood into a basin and he would take it into the most holiest place so that he could throw it on the altar this is what Zechariah sees okay but when you look at Zechariah chapter 3 it says in verse 3 now Joshua when he comes into the holiest place in God's presence Presence, was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Now where it says filthy clothes there, what it actually is saying is he's dressed in clothing covered in excrement, feces, urine. And Zechariah is kind of freaked out about this because he's like, to the human eye, Joshua looked totally spotless. But the point is, is that to God's eye, even the spotlessness that we think we have on the outside, to God's eyes, that is still filthy. And the point is, is that no amount of washing, no amount of purifying, no matter how hard he tries, there's no way he can get rid of this this stain that's upon him. Only God can do it. And so in verses 4 and 5, we read this in Zechariah chapter 3. Take, oh, sorry. Uh, the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. And then prophetically, just a few verses later, it says, beginning in verse 8, Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. And listen for it. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter right here. You need to be washed. I'm the only one who can wash you. It's the bad news of the gospel. Yeah, you are more wicked than you ever dared imagine. Or, if you like this better, cheer up. You're worse than you think you are. But, 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 but. (laughs) Before I get to the but, very quickly. (sighs) You ever watch those shows? I don't know if they're on anymore, but you know those shows where you, uh, uh, a news crew, they go to like a hotel, And the hotel is like super clean and it looks really nice. And then they they go into the room and they shut the light off and they shine one of these black lights on it. And you discover that there's like stains all over the place. And when you see that, you'll never want to go to a hotel again in your life because it's really, really gross. Well, the holiness of God is a black light on our soul. And yet, and yet, here's the thing we need to understand and remember. It's Jesus who insists on washing Peter. Peter. Jesus says, unless, he says, I must, I voluntarily must wash you. Now what's so significant about that? Imagine what's happening at the scene. Imagine you're there and you're sitting at the table and you can feel the, the gross and the grime and the, you can smell the stench of your own feet and Jesus gets to you and he bends down in front of you and he gets down on his knees and he, he reaches out for your foot and he reaches out and he grabs it and he cradles it and now it's right there in his face and the stench is going up into his nose and then he, he takes it and he dips it in the basin or he takes the washcloth and he pours water on it and he begins to scrub and he begins to scrub and the dirty water starts to, to come down on his arm and, it, and it, maybe it even splashes onto his chest or even up into his face a little bit. Here's, the, here's what I'm trying to get you to see. In order for Jesus to wash us clean, Jesus has to get dirty himself. He has to be defiled in order for Peter and you and me to be clean. The lesson is coming, okay? The lesson is coming. Listen, Jesus didn't cause those feet to be dirty. He didn't make those feet dirty, but they needed to be clean, and he said, I must be the one to do it. He paid the cost to make them clean. This is a picture, guys. This is a picture Of Christ's work of salvation for you and I. He takes the sin of the world on himself. Think about all the world's misery. Just reflect a couple seconds on that prayer that Albert prayed like this world is one messed up joint. The cruelty you watch on the news and you see that, 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 that the governments of Myanmar is like killing their own people. You hear about it in China millions of people are being put in these concentration camps and worked to the bone to re-educate them out of their Muslim faith because the Chinese government doesn't like it. You hear stories of children being utterly neglected. If anybody works with CAS in the foster system, they hear all these crazy stories of these poor children being subjected to the worst kinds of atrocities. You hear of child pornography and you hear of kids as young as as infants are being used as sexual tools for, for, for perverted predators. The world is one screwed up place. Whose fault is it? Whose fault is it? The answer is complex. What about your own life? You've been mistreated. You've been abused. And it has screwed you up. You can't have half decent relationships now because of this. You 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 live with anxiety or depression because of things that have happened to you that other people have, have done to you. Whose fault is it? It's their fault, but who's bearing the cost? You say I am. And it's wrong. It's not fair. You think they should bear the cost, and maybe you're right, maybe they should bear the cost, but, but how did they become the kind of person that would mistreat you the way that you did? What's their story? Maybe they were mistreated, and the cycle goes on and on and on, and we're pointing fingers, and we're looking for culpability, and we're demanding justice. All the while, it's all our fault, and Jesus stands up, and he says, enough. The one thing we know is it's not me. I will take it away. I will deal with the filth. I will deal with the brokenness. I will deal with the abuse and the agony and the harm and the trauma and the misery and the damage and the suffering. None of it is my fault, but I will bear it. To make you clean. Peter to make you clean. Paul Vanabring to make you clean. Grace Valley Church to make you clean. I will bear it. So what do we do with that? What does this have to do with the lesson of being a servant like he's a servant? Well, in verse 15 through 17, Jesus says this, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Okay. Okay. We just saw before, well, that must mean, you know, we're supposed to be willing to serve others because he was willing to serve us. (laughs) Well, it's a lot deeper than that now, isn't it, friends? I truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm not just calling you to serve other people. Rather, if you're going to be a part of me, you got to serve people to the end. you got to take the hit, like I have taken the hit. Listen, you have people in your life that are messed up. Some of you have people in your life that are really messed up. And they cause all kinds of trouble in your world. And it is not your fault. You didn't cause this but they are causing all kinds of trouble. They have anger and bad habits, and uh, they're abusive, and they're incredibly needy, and you're emotionally drained every time you, you are in relationship with them, and you, you have to put up with midnight meltdowns and late-night phone calls. What do you do? Jesus is saying, you take it. You don't hit back. You don't replace evil with evil, you, you return evil with good. And maybe they'll come out of it eventually. I, I heard a story of a, of a woman who was very candid about going through a season, a long season of depression in her life, pretty long period of time. And she, she knew that she was not being a good mom, not being a good friend, not being a good husband. She would lash out at people. She would show indifference toward them. She would seem completely uninterested in their lives. There was very little give and take in, their relation, in her relationships with others because she just didn't have the emotional uh, 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 capacity to, to give. And, and she was not a great person. This is of her own thinking. She was not a kind person. She was not a gentle person. But she spoke of her husband and she said, you know, my husband, he was just there and he took it. That doesn't mean he was a complete doormat and he never held her to account for how she behaved or anything. No, but he didn't, he didn't give up. He didn't say, I'm done with you. I've had enough. I'm out. Have you ever had that? That you're like, I, I love this person. I care about this person, but they've hurt me enough times. They've bothered me enough times. I'm out. And Jesus says... Or this woman, sorry, said that my husband, he wouldn't, he, he just, he was just there. He wouldn't make me pay. And and eventually, that was a big part of how I came out of this. Now, I'm not telling you that if you behave that way toward others, and by the way, you'll you'll never do it perfectly. Only Jesus can do it perfectly. And I'm not telling you that if you do that, that the, the, the ending is going to be happy. What I'm trying to tell you is, is that there is a power. There is a power in the gospel that when it sinks into you, it explodes out of you. It's not your power. You have an ability, a supernatural ability not to pay back or give up. Because Jesus, your master, took the hits for you. So that you can take the hits for others. What would... What would this church look like if we were a place where people, when they came into contact with us, they just said, they are incorruptibly long-suffering. They take the hit. They always come back. I'm not saying that you may not have to leave for a bit and just, like, go scream in a corner and, you know, pull your hair out. But you always come back. I think it would change the world if the church even just a little bit looked like the Jesus of this story. Please pray with me. Father, what you call us to is beyond our abilities. It is too much. We've been going through these stories and just seeing that uh, this, this gospel, it is out of this world. There's no way this is a human invention because it is too radical, too extreme, too demanding. And yet, and yet, there is so much hope in it, because what you call us to, you provide. You give us what we need to follow you, not just into the resurrection, but even to the cross in our relationships with others. Work mightily in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.